Well, if you have your Bible, turn to 1 Peter. Now, I want to let you know, because this is an overview, uh, I'm going to show you some big themes that Peter brings out. And so I'm going to point out some specific verses. So uh, hopefully you have uh, a copy of the scriptures. There's some back on the back table. Uh, If you need one, you can get one. And uh, I'll draw your attention to a few verses. All right. Let's pray, though, and ask God to, to give us wisdom as we think about his word. Again, Father, we come to you on the basis of the Lord Jesus, our Savior. Uh, We come to you needy, we come humble, uh, and we pray, Father, that you would help us. We pray that your Spirit would help us to understand your Word. But, Father, we we don't want an academic exercise. We want uh, want life change. And uh, so, Father, help us to understand your Word. Uh, But then, Father, help us to take it from here and to live it out. Uh, through your spirit. We thank you for your grace. Would you take a few moments quietly, don't say anything out loud, but just pray for me uh, and uh, ask God to, to speak through me. And then pray for yourself as well, just quietly, just ask God to speak to your heart as we look at his word. We thank you, Father, for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's difficult to be different, isn't it? Uh, I remember when I was 13 years old, what a difficult time. Uh, When I was 13 years old, all I wanted was to be accepted by my friends who were around me. All I wanted to do was to blend in uh, and, and be like those people who were around me. And I would have done anything uh, to have their approval uh, and to blend in. I didn't want to stand out. Uh, What's the saying, you know, if you stick your head up above the crowd, what what happens to it? It gets chopped off, doesn't it? And so I remember when I was 13, man, I I was willing to do just about anything uh, to blend in with those who were around me. And then I started following Jesus, and I started making different choices. I started making choices that, 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 that pulled me out uh, and, and separated me, uh, made me look different from those who are around me. And I, I remember being made fun of. I remember being laughed at uh, because I didn't want to do the things that they did. And maybe adults can be less cruel. Maybe they can't. Uh, but maybe adults can be less cruel, but I mean, I, I still, maybe like you, I still get derided and reviled and, you know, made fun of because of things that I do that separate me, that make me different, and make me stand out from people who are around me. And if you're a Jesus follower here, look, you, you know that because you experience that as well. To follow Jesus is to be different, or at least it should be. It's so hard, though, to stick our necks out, as you probably have experienced. It's so hard to stand against the current of the culture that's moving so powerfully and just wants to kind of sweep us away. To say, no, I'm not going to cheat on my exam, even though that might help me. Or or to say, no, I'm going to do my taxes honestly, 
even though to, to do something different would be beneficial for me. To say, no, I'm not going to, to, to sleep with that guy or girl, or I'm not going to gossip, you know, I'm not going to talk about that person uh, in that way. Those are difficult things. And the world that doesn't treat people who are different kindly, does it? Maybe you've suffered ridicule or derision. You know, maybe you've been laughed at or made fun of. You've been the butt of jokes. Maybe, uh, maybe you've been disowned by a, a parent or, or some family member. Uh, or maybe worse, I don't know. And if you've experienced that, you know the discouragement that it can bring, right? And if you haven't yet experienced it, well, look, I mean, mark my words, it's coming. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus... You are going to stand out from the crowd and you'll never be far from difficulty and suffering. Well, Peter is writing uh, to a people who are different. They are outsiders in their communities. It's possible that, that they are, are different ethnically, that you know, they could be mainly uh, a group of Jews who were expelled from Rome when Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome in AD 49, and they were scattered to these particular places that Peter mentions uh, in verse 1, in what we would call today Turkey, the nation of Turkey. Whatever, though, it, 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 it may be metaphorical uh, that these are metaphorical outsiders. Whatever the case is, uh, this is uh, the people to whom Peter writes. They stand out in a culture uh, that is at odds with Christian living. And they end up suffering because of it. Now, outside of officially sanctioned kind of empire-wide persecution, Christians were always seen as weird uh, in the first few centuries uh, of the church. Uh, they, were seen as, uh, they, were, they were seen as kind of oddballs. Uh, they were considered atheists because they only worshipped one God instead of the, the pantheon of gods that, that other Romans uh, worshipped. They were seen as incestuous because of all this talk about loving your brother and sister. They were even seen as, as cannibals. Uh, because they ate the body and drank the blood of the Lord Jesus. They were always considered to be outsiders. They were always seen to be separated from those that, are, or that were around them. And in that way, we stand alongside of them. Because in our society today, we are the crazy ones, aren't we? We are the oddballs. We are the ones that stick out. And so for them... And for us, there is encouragement here, as well as challenge in these words that Peter writes. Now, if you know your history, uh, the, the emperor Nero in AD 64 is going to launch kind of an empire-wide persecution of Christians. And so most think that Peter is writing just before that, around 62 to 63, just before that empire-wide persecution begins. So while the suffering here that we're going to read about is probably more sporadic and it's more localized, it's more uh, neighbors or co-workers or customers that are deriding and reviling these Christians, it's about to get far worse for Christians in Rome, in the Roman Empire. And we face much the same kind of ridicule today. 
We face the derision from neighbors and coworkers and customers. We face that today. But here's the thing. We don't know what tomorrow is going to be like, do we? So there is perhaps even more suffering to come. And so we need to take courage from what Peter is going to tell us in these words. Peter's words here have value for all of God's different people in every time and in every place. So I want us to think about today as we look at this book as a whole, how we overcome the discouragement that comes from being different as followers of Jesus. Because as you know, the problem with being different is that it brings with it difficulty. And that can be discouraging. Difficulty attacks our confidence in God, doesn't it? Uh, Difficulty attacks, uh, the, the trials attack that confidence that we have in God. And interesting in this book, Peter doesn't hide from the irony. He upholds the cross of Jesus as central to our hope. But he also recognizes that it's that very cross that invites that suffering and that derision and that reviling from people who are around us. So as people of the cross, Peter's going to tell us we are different. The cross of Jesus simultaneously places us in two different worlds. It places us simultaneously in this world and in the next. Uh, In chapter 1, verse 1, Peter says he writes to exiles, those that are exiled. Uh, He talks about down in verse 17... Uh, during your time of exile in this life. Uh, In chapter 2, verse 11, he calls them sojourners and aliens in this world. Uh, We are strangers here. We are different as people of the cross. And that reality leads to suffering. It either leads to directly suffering or it leads to us denying ourselves, saying no to things. That self-denial can also be a form of suffering. And with that suffering comes the temptation to quit and to give up, to give in, and to walk away from the faith. Now listen, uh, this isn't to discount other forms or other causes of suffering. These words that we'll read, I mean, they'll apply to cancer and they'll apply to wars and they'll, they'll apply to viruses and, and all these other things that we suffer uh, in this world. But I think Peter has something specific in mind when he's talking about suffering in this book. Now, all of those forms of suffering are discouraging. But Peter's thinking about, I think, primarily those who are being reviled, like Jesus, for their faith and their good conduct. So look at a few verses with me. Look down in chapter 2, verse 19. Chapter 2, verse 19. For this is a gracious thing, uh, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. When you do good and suffer for it. You endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called because Christ also suffered. He also suffered for doing good. Uh, Look in chapter 3, verse 9. 
He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but bless. In verse, uh, down in chapter 3, verse 14, he says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake. Down in 16 and 17 of the same chapter. When you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ. You see, look in uh, chapter 4, verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them uh, in their sin. And what do they do? They malign you because you don't join in their sin. Uh, In verse 14 of chapter 4, if you are insulted for the name of Christ... And then in verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, do you see what Peter is thinking about here? He's thinking primarily about suffering that comes when we stand with Christ for faith and doing what is good. We invite derision, we invite ridicule, and we invite difficulty. As one commentator, Karen Jobes, as she says, you know, we'll do anything to avoid pain and suffering, won't we? We'll do anything to avoid it. Uh, I mean, think about times in your life where you went along with something that you knew wasn't right, but you went along with it because you just didn't want to stand out. You just didn't want to draw attention to yourself that might result in someone, say, turning the gossip on you, right? I mean, we've all done things like that. We all know what that feels like. And we'll do anything to avoid pain and suffering. Karen Jobes, she says, even those Christians who don't suffer persecution for the faith are called to the suffering of self-denial. Sin, here's what she says, I think this is great. Sin is often thought of as being motivated by the temptation of pleasure. But perhaps the real power of sin lies in the avoidance of pain and suffering. Right? We often think of sin, the primary temptation, as, uh, as being pleasure. But how often is sin and the temptation to sin motivated by, I just don't want to stand out. I just don't want to get in trouble here. I just don't want to suffer in this instance. But Peter doesn't allow us to accommodate as believers. He doesn't say, you know what? You don't have to live different or deny yourself because I understand it's going to bring about difficulty and trouble, and suffering. So you know what? Don't don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. He doesn't say that. He calls believers to double down on living differently, even if it leads to more suffering and derision. We are supposed to look different because we are different. So have a look in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. He says, You shall be holy... For I am holy, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile. Down in chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak of you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In verse 15, 
uh, of chapter 2. He says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And then over in chapter 4, in chapter 4, verses 3 to 5, he says, The time is past for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, but they will give an account to him. And then I think one of the key verses in chapter 4, verse 19, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator What does he say? While doing good. See, we are called to be different because we are different. And what Peter wants us to understand in the letter is that the roots of our identity are anchored in something more certain than this world. The roots of our identity are anchored in the cross of Jesus Christ. And Peter says to us that our hope for the future is grounded in who we are because of what Jesus has done. We have a new identity in him. We are God's people through Christ, who is the ultimate outsider, isn't he? He's the ultimate example of an outsider who came to a foreign world and lived differently to the glory of God and was vindicated for it. So we live in two worlds at once, but not in equal measure. Because our identity is found in God and in the cross. So he calls Peter in chapter 1, verse 1, he calls them exiles, but he says they are elect of God. They belong to him. He he says that they are strangers and they are aliens, but they are God's people who have been bought for him. So our identity as God's people is what ultimately defines who we are in this life. Because of what Jesus has done in coming as a stranger and suffering at the hands of sinners, we have a new identity. So look at chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. It's a great section. Adam's going to look at it uh, next week. He says that we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Down in verse 23 uh, of chapter 1, he says, Since you have been born again through the word of God. In verses 18 and 19, he says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, that you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. In chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, He says that Jesus himself bore our sins in the body so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. See, this is who we are 
in Christ. We are new. We are born again. We are purchased back through the blood of Jesus. We, we belong to God. We don't belong to this world anymore. We belong to him. Chapter 2, verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. This is who we are. And as we are united to God's people, we have a new family, don't we? Past and present, we are purchased by God and we have a new family. There are, uh, there are about eight different times where Peter quotes the Old Testament in this short letter. And there are many more allusion, allusions to uh, the Old Testament. Peter wants to unite us with the stream of God's people that runs all the way through the Old Testament and into the future. We are part now, because of Christ, we are part of this new people of God. And so, in chapter 1, verse 13, we see this allusion to the Passover. And we are a part of that. We see in verse 16, an allusion to Leviticus uh, the call of Israel to be holy as God is holy. And we are a part of that. Uh, in, in chapter 2, verse 5, we see an allusion to the temple where God is building a temple who are his people. And we are living stones that are being built up as his people, just like they were then. In verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2, we are priests of God, just as they were then. And God has delivered us into something new. And this is where we stand. This is our identity. This is who we are in Christ. And that is the grace in which we stand. From chapter 1, verse 13 to chapter 5, uh, the end of chapter 5, we stand firm in that grace that we are new as his people. And that is a better uh, and a more certain identity than what the world offers us. It is better because Christ has won victory over the world. His suffering in accordance with God's will was vindicated. That is, it was proven to be correct. It was, it was proven to be right. He won the victory. And what that means for us is that sin and suffering do not have the final word. Sin and suffering in this life do not have the final word. It's the finished work of Jesus, the victory that he has won. That is the ground of Peter's confidence in this letter. It's the ground on which we stand, that victory that Christ has won. In chapter 3, uh, verses 18 to 22, an exceedingly difficult paragraph, and Adam is going to completely explain it to us, okay, when we get there. But chapter 3, verse 18, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey and he continues, Christ has proclaimed the victory. He has proclaimed victory over any who would stand against him. He is victorious. His death and resurrection have won our victory. And so we see throughout Peter references to the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, and the coming again 
of Christ. And so Peter writes from this ground of confidence in what Jesus has done, but he writes with a future-focused certainty to encourage us, to encourage those who suffer in the present. Our suffering and faith will also be vindicated. It will also be made to stand. It won't disappoint us in the end because the future is certain in Christ. So look back at chapter 1, verse 5. Peter talks about this inheritance that we look forward to that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading that's kept in heaven for us who, verse 5 tells us, are also being guarded through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Do you see that future focus? He's drawing our attention to this certain future that Jesus' victory has secured for us, that we can look to, that will give us confidence in the present suffering that we might face. Or verse 7, that our faith tested may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, that future focus. In verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That future focused certainty that Peter draws us to. In verse 13, preparing your minds, being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, this is where Peter wants to draw our attention. In chapter 3, verse 18, he says, Christ suffered so that he might bring us to God. In chapter 4, verse 13, rejoice when you share in the sufferings of Christ, that you may also rejoice when His glory is revealed. Do you see? Peter wants to draw our attention to the future certainty of Christ's coming that is grounded in the work of Christ on the cross in order to give us courage in the present when we suffer. So what does it look like then for us to overcome the discouragement of being different so that we live out this new identity. Because look, this isn't theoretical. I mean, there's over 30 commands in this, this little small letter. This isn't theoretical. And it's not theoretical because guess what? We have to walk out of this door and into a world that is ready to revile, that is ready to make fun of us when we stand opposed or when we stand up for what is right. And so what does this look like out there? How do we stand in confidence? We have to live each moment. We have to live each moment in this world with our eyes on what is to come. Every moment we have to make a decision to turn our attention to what is to come and not the present. And that demands that we make a few shifts in our thinking. Uh, three times Peter tells us to be sober-minded, to think well, to have the right perspective as we go through this life. And that's so difficult, isn't it? Because when we suffer hardship, the only thing that we can see 
often is what is right around us. But Peter says, be sober-minded. Have this perspective that allows you to, 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 to change your focus to think about the future and what is to come. So we shift our eyes from our present troubles to our future hope. This is key, I think, in 1 Peter. We stand with Christ, suffering with Him as He did in the hope of things to come. So again, what I think is a key verse in 1 Peter, chapter 4, verse 19. I'm going to read it again. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter ties that to Jesus' suffering in chapter 3, verse 22. When he talks about the suffering of Jesus, who has gone into heaven... Uh, sorry, I'm, did I get that right? 322 who has gone into heaven is at the right hand with angels, authorities, powers being subjected to him. I didn't get that right. Christ suffered once for sins that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and made alive to, to the Spirit as he entrusted himself to God. So Jesus entrusted himself to God in doing good. And Peter connects that to our trusting ourselves to God as we seek to do good as well. And Peter, in chapter 4, verse 7, he highlights prayer as one of the ways that we do this. He says, be sober-minded, have this perspective uh, for the sake of your prayers so that you might pray for the strength to endure. And we remind ourselves and we remind one another of the future that is secured by the cross. That then, the future is better. And it's certain. And then we shift our goal from survival to living the way Jesus lived. See, listen, if our future is secured in Christ, then we can focus on what Jesus did. We can focus on doing what Jesus did and living the way that he lived. So Matthew 10, 28, where Jesus says, don't fear those who can kill the body but can't fill the, kill the soul. If our future is secured, then we can entrust ourselves to that certain future and we can pursue living the way Christ lived. Again, he is the model and he wasn't focused on avoiding difficulty. He was, a fo he was focused on doing the will of God. On doing what God had given him to do. Now, let me just be clear. That doesn't mean that we go hunting for difficulty. It doesn't mean that we go out looking for trouble or looking for, you know, uh, being reviled or, or being made fun of. That's not what Peter says. We don't have to go looking for it, do we? If we're going to live different, it's going to find us. But when it finds us, we focus on doing the will of God. Because we don't have to fear it, we can allow God to use our suffering for the sake of the gospel. Now think about Jesus. Jesus suffered in following the will of God. But what did his suffering produce? His suffering saved us. And so God is able to leverage even our difficulty 
for the sake of the gospel. There is mission in suffering as we are faithful to Christ. So think about a few verses with me. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into a marvelous light. Think about uh, chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you, they may see your good deeds and do what? And glorify God on the day of visitation, that they might be saved as they see you enduring difficulty for the sake of the gospel. That sounds like uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Let your light shine before men so that when they see your good works, they might glorify your God in heaven. See, God uses our willingness to suffer for doing good. He uses it to draw people to Christ. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Chapter 3, verse 1, he writes to wives with unbelieving husbands that, they, that their husbands may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Chapter 3, verse 13, he says... Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. See, God wants to use that suffering that we endure for the sake of Christ, in order to bring people to Christ, that they might look to him and trust in him. And then finally, we shift our attitude from fear to resistance as we seek to resist the temptation to sell out and to give up in our faith. We do that together. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25, it says that we encourage one another, that we, we make the confession that Christ is all we have and all we need, and then we encourage one another in that confession. And as we encourage, we encourage through our presence together. Uh, as we gather with one another, we encourage one another to persevere in doing good, to entrust our souls to Christ. We encourage one another in our songs, in our prayers. Because look, Satan doesn't want you to suffer for doing good, does he? He doesn't want you to endure difficulty for the sake of Christ. He wants you to fear standing out from the crowd. He wants you to fear being different so that you shrink back. And so the call to resist that pull implies that we choose to live for God regardless of what it might cost us. We choose to give ourselves to Him. And that demands, as I said, it demands moment by moment micro-adjustments 
as we encounter difficulty in situations in which we can either join in sin and not face ridicule, or we can stand firm in our faith in that very moment, we have to go through these progressions. We have to say, okay, I have a future hope in Christ that would make even this ridicule or suffering worth it. And even more than that, God could use this stand for His glory in the gospel. And so I will resist the temptation to pursue what would be easiest in order to pursue what is best. Again, I'm going to read it again. This is like the fourth time I've read it. Chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And so, Peter demands now that we examine our lives. Are there places where you are suffering directly or suffering because of your refusal to sin with everyone else? Are there ways in which you are suffering now for righteousness' sake? If not, is it because you're hiding out? See, the question is, are you willing to suffer for not sinning? Are you willing to suffer alienation and ridicule for living out of different values and different allegiances? Are you willing to suffer for living differently? Like if, we, if we brought your friends in and did like a police lineup and asked them to identify the followers of Jesus, would they point to you? And say, yeah, he, she is obviously a follower of Jesus because they are so different in the way they live. Yes, it is always easier to give in, to blend in. It is always easier to not look different. But it is not better. It is not better. John chapter 6 Jesus, many of his followers leave him and they, they, they go because it's difficult and Jesus looks at his closest men and he says, you guys going to leave too? And Peter says, where can we go? You have the words of life. We're going to be willing to suffer hardship and difficulty for your sake. See, this is where Peter's going to take us. As we look at this letter, he's going to challenge us. He's going to challenge us to suffer well for the sake of the gospel as we entrust our souls to our Heavenly Father. We are people of the cross. The cross is a place of suffering. And so we take up our crosses as we follow Jesus. And we know that in this world we're going to suffer because of our union with Him. And yet the cross is also a place of hope isn't it? It's a place of victory. And so that same union that invites ridicule and hardship gives us a living hope of a better future beyond this world. I mean, think about it. Will it matter in 10 million billion years that someone made fun of you for not following in the same line of sin that they walked in? No, it won't. So what we see as we look closer 
is that our suffering as we cling to the cross projects the cross into the world so that others might see it and believe. And so as God's people, we repent. Even as we endure, trust, and obey. Again, I bring you back to that saying, that confession that we made earlier. Christ has died. Christ is risen. And Christ will come again. See, that is our confession. That's the reason for our hope. Peter said in chapter 3.15, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within you. That's our reason. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And that confession, if we cling to it, will get us through this hostile world to the next. And by God's grace, by God's grace, it might even get more people going with us as we suffer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the encouragement that Peter gives. That the past work of Jesus grounds us in the present because it gives us hope for the future. But Father, we know that that encouragement doesn't come without a challenge. That with that encouragement comes the call to take up our cross. And we know that taking up our cross is at least an act of self-denial, if not an invitation to direct ridicule and suffering and so father would you give us the courage to live out our identity as your people would you help us father by your grace to in those moments where we are tempted to give up where we are tempted to follow the crowd to blend in would you give us the courage to stand firm on our certain future to entrust our souls to you while doing good. And Father, would you, in your grace, would you use that in order to bring people to the point of faith that they might trust in Christ for themselves. And Father, if there is anyone here today that has not trusted in Jesus, Would they hear the words of what Christ accomplished on the cross in dying and shedding his blood to pay the penalty for their sin? Would you lead them, Father, to placing their trust and their hope in Christ? Father, we pray that you would work in us. Father, that you would bring conviction where we have hidden out, where we have blended in. Father, would you bring courage to stand up and to stand firm in grace. We thank you and we recognize that we have no hope apart from the gospel. There is nothing in us, Father, that wants to do what is good. Any good that we do, Father, is a result of you through your spirit working in us. So we pray that that would continue in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.